Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and in each episode, I explore a topical issue concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality, or whatever you want to call it, with the help of philosophers, religious scholars, and intellectuals from a wide variety of fields, as well as practitioners and teachers, always with the intent to explore new terrain of thought and practice. That's right, we're looking for some kind of revolution here. You can download or play episodes for free at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and keep up to date with news through Twitter and Facebook. Throw comments at us, criticism, critique, and suggestions for guests and topics to cover. You can also find writings, show notes, and much more at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me. If you're looking for support or help exploring practice beyond tradition in a coaching dynamic, or if you're stuck in your practice or have become disillusioned with Buddhism or some other path or practice, or if you're a secular atheist looking for some kind of way forward without religion and ridiculous beliefs, then you might want to get in touch. If any of the issues that come up in our episodes are touching, striking, or important to you, that's also the material I just love to explore. So visit oconocoaching.com for more information. Most of our episodes are sponsored by bands. Groups from Bristol, my original hometown in England, or Trieste, Italy, where I currently reside. If you like what you hear, then why not support the artist, most of whom can be discovered at Bandcamp. That's all. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the first critical turn. Now, after the first two episodes in this series on practice, what is evident is that the terrain ahead is far richer and far more complex than I, at least, may have previously imagined. So if you will, imagine a very large forest with a clearing in the middle, and that these critical turns are the clearing and the forest are the conversations that I've had and will be having. This clearing serves as a place for a moment of reflection, for gathering together materials and resources before heading back out into the dark undergrowth with its rich knotted bushes, dense canopies and unpredictable terrain. Those would be my conversations with guests. Be warned, nature metaphors will appear heavily in this episode. And if you like them, great, and if you don't, well, just suspend disbelief for a moment. Some interesting acquaintances will tag along on this first foray into the wilds and sit with us around the campfire, none other than Samuel Beckett, Peter Slotterdijk, who I can't help but resist saying with a Scottish accent, Francois Laruelle and Evelyn Underhill will all be there, but of course so will you. In fact, I realise as I go on with these conversations and podcast episodes that none of this is done alone. Yes, I know it's obvious, but these things sometimes take a while to truly sink in. So come along for a stroll through the deep, dark woods with me. Towards that clearing, we may even find a gruffalo. Anybody know that reference? Hmm. Now bear in mind, I haven't just spoken to Hokai and Ken. I've also had two conversations with Mr. Daniel Ingram here in Trieste too. And so this recording actually follows on from four real-world conversations in person along with a variety of interactions with listeners and acquaintances on live topics since, both in person and through various platforms. Our first acquaintance at the fire is Mr. Samuel Beckett. He was mentioned by both Glenn Wallace in an episode from a year or two back and Ken McLeod in the more recent conversation. Now, if you don't know who he is, he was a towering figure in theatre, an impressive playwright, experimental writer, and a noted friend of Mr. James Joyce, who, by the way, just happened to live here in Trieste for several years, as even a statue of him and various locations dedicated to the life he lived here. Beckett is an impressive character, a fine human being, I might call him, and he's also got a lot of great quotes. Here's one I rather like. We are all born mad, and some remain so. Beckett is great company here at the start of these critical explorations, for he was so deeply concerned with the essential aspects of human experience in all its rawness, and the frail human condition more generally. 
He was known for his pessimism, but a form of it that defies the misery and dourness so often associated with this tricky human characteristic. Pessimism can be a door to profound human truth, after all. Some of the great questions that drove Beckett drive this podcast too, and one is, well, kind of encapsulated here. How can we come to terms with the fact that, without ever having asked for it, we have been thrown into the world and into being? Well, this reminds me of Heidegger. But Beckett reminds us more generally of our shared humanity in a way that Heidegger might have missed. Another quote is basically one that, well, Glenn Anken shared. And it's, I think, one of his great quotes. It could be a fine Dharma quote for our Buddhist listeners. Why not? It's fail and fail again better. Well, that's a useful practice question, but it's also a useful reflection on how much we can know or achieve in our lives to any meaningful degree. It also connects back to the experience of loss and failure that Hokai and Ken spoke about. So thank you, Mr. Beckett. Enjoy the warmth as we move on. So, in terms of direction, where to? Well, perhaps a little bit of context then. In my conversation with Ken and Hokai, I made a point that is worth repeating here. I see ideas as something to participate in, not own. So I don't really have my own ideas. There are ideas that I relate to, that I can host in my mind and body, or ponder for a while. But they are not possessions that affirm my status or role. They are not held in some ideas bank in my head and dealt out onto the competitive table of identity poker where chest-thumping posturing passes as conversation, discussion and debate. We are, after all, submersed in a vibrant sea of ideas. So why would we think they're ours or yours or the possession of one of us? In fact, this is so obvious when you start to think of it. It's amazing that we actually don't relate to ideas in this way more often. It would save us a lot of problems, right? In fact, if we see this again from a perspective of nature, we live within an ecology of living thought, which, if we're paying attention, and if we're less obsessed with ourselves than we should be, should get richer as we age and meet more of the world and continue to be curious about it. Isn't it funny that curiosity and ongoing learning are primary factors in delaying diseases like Alzheimer's? Hmm. Just a thought. Now, I hold that this is a useful way to view knowledge more broadly. In fact, so much of our epistemological wrangling is caught up in our wrestle with our own identities and our attempt to assert our roles and position in the world, whether personally or professionally. And it's kind of boring. I'm actually rather bored of it. I just don't really care what your ideas are. I would say, let's explore together. What's going on? How can we be surprised by any of these? Being surprised is a wonderful thing as you get older, and some of you will know what I'm talking about. In fact, when ideas primarily serve to assert roles and positions, well, they usually end up becoming political. I don't believe that everything is political any more than I believe that everything is spiritual. Life is far grander than a single lens. So, seeing ourselves as immersed in an ecology of ideas is kind of a cool antidote to the age we live in. I also believe that it bears reasserting that we are participating in history always. Our lives are both grand opportunities and insignificant moments. These are both true, right? We need creative modes, though, of engaging that are not mere repetitions of history. We are, after all, burdened with too much knowledge and an extremely limited capacity to know what to do with it all. In fact, I'd suggest we're all struggling with this right now. So we need decent heuristics, tools, methods, and practices. We also need learned words from a variety of deeply human voices with very different views of life and life experience. We could also benefit from a few working principles to help us navigate the new, emergent terrain we find ourselves on. And guess what? That's what I'm going to be providing next. In fact, this is my way of offering an introduction to the critical turns that will come throughout this year's series. Essentially, what I will do with these utterly imperfect and incomplete reflections is to, firstly, work from a number of principles that you will now know in reflecting on the most recent episodes, 
2. Address burning issues that emerge from them. 3. Explore the themes that underline those issues and attempt to locate them to some degree within the wider context in which we live and, obviously, what I see as relevant to the thrust of this podcast. 4. Explore some of the lingering questions that uh, are just lying around in that forest clearing after the conversation has been had. Now, I view this as a form of practice, and I'm inviting you to participate in it. And to make this doable, workable, the principles I'm sharing are, well, or will hopefully provide us with some degree of mutual understanding, some degree of sync in the dark terrain. And after the conversation with Hokai and Ken, I kind of feel like posing them as a contract, a commitment to each other and to the game at hand. This is a pact you might like to agree to in this cultural age of flirtation with different forms of social commitment and social connection. And the soon-to-become-fashionable-again, I do keep predicting this, social duty we have to one another. And just to anticipate one theme I get into with Daniel, this wonderful planet that hosts us so generously with her many forms of art. Yes, I'm talking about the plants, the bugs, the mammals, the rocks the seasons and elements. But I also need a few rules to make these principles functional and worthy of your attention, right? These can all be modified as needed, so chip in if you have a few thoughts. But I think these are a pretty good departure point for our trek, and uh, there are just four of them. Number one, be as succinct as possible without abandoning opportunities for a creative flurry. This is the first one, um, so it's probably going to be a little bit longer because of this preamble but I'm going to be aiming for a maximum 30 minutes for each one. And there is that phrase, right, about less being more sometimes? Number two, be as clear as possible and explicit with language choices. Yes, we could spend hours discussing each term and each point covered. In most cases, you know what, I would probably enjoy doing it. (laughs) But I know that's not everyone's picnic, so I shall simply try not to assume too much about what you know or don't know, and make terms clear in a practical manner. Number three, admit my ignorance and share the burden. Come on, in this social age, we've really got to share things out. Let's keep working together. Chip in, chip in, chip in. The other point as well is that we're all partial partakers of the delights of this world. By this, I mean that the foundational axiom informing at least my relationship with knowledge and experience is that I am forever partially ignorant, right? Things are never truly complete, but always a work in progress. And therefore, my knowledge and understanding of any given thing is limited and partial too. We can strive instead to embrace a praxis rooted in better knowing, but never be at the end of such an endeavour. Now, some of the smarter listeners, the more critical listeners, will be saying, well, this is obvious, right? As the Italians say, they have this wonderful noise, they make and that just basically means, you know, either I don't know, I don't give a shit, or that's bloody obvious. But you know what? There's a big difference between things being theoretically obvious and being practically true. In fact, in my experience, convincing our monkey brains that we never truly know the completeness of anything and that we're always partially ignorant is quite different from living from the truth of that fact. We are positional creatures after all. We're constantly asserting our perspectives within the key of truth. Anyway, that could be an entire podcast episode right there, couldn't it? Number four, the last one. Try and be explicit about my own assumptions and position. Well, you can hear me doing this as I'm going through this introduction. Again, it will be incomplete and imperfect, and some of you more astute listeners will pick out my own failings. Feel free to share them. It's all good. Now, you might have noticed that I actually speak about myself very little on most of these podcast episodes. That's deliberate. And it relates back to the idea about ideas, which I mentioned before. I'm not interested in asserting a position I hold, but obviously I will need to mention my relationship status with ideas, theories and practices if I'm going to be explicit. So, it might be best to consider me a rather fickle teenager in this regard, one that likes sleeping around, but has a good deal of affection for all of his many divergent partners. Oh yeah. BTW I like the musical term key, and I might use it a lot, not as something to open a door, although of course it could to that. And I use this, in a way, as a kind of uh, embodied lens, you know, 
That's one of those fashionable terms that keeps getting partnered up into a cosy couple with another fashionable term, narrative. Or another way of saying it, as I keep hearing on the news, his story or her story. Well, to be in a key, I think, could be imagined as a way of being in resonance with the embodied performance of both of those two. And of course, we can switch key as and when. Now, finally, before we get on to these principles, how about one campfire sausage worth of explicitness? Don't we all have a bit of utopian idealism lurking in our backpacks somewhere? Right? Well, mine here, just to continue being explicit, might be a one in which all of you listeners would run with the challenges that come up in the podcast episodes as a form of practice. Because if we're honest about it, most of the themes that come up, most of the ideas and the material, well, it's all part of us too, right? Like the trees in our imaginary clearing, these things are always grander than us and they just stand there waiting for us to stop ignoring them. I think this podcast is kind of playing out of this function by reminding folks of the rich surroundings that have been unwittingly ignored. As I see it, the more we let ideas in, just like the natural world around us, the more power they have to shake and disrupt us and the relationships we have. And that's the kind of practicing life I enjoy. Alrighty, okay, let's go on. So here are a few working principles that kind of capture my perverted engagement with the Dharma and the conversations with guests past, present and future. I believe that some of these may be helpful to you. They are key to the podcast after all, as well as my writing, the coaching work I do and my own practicing life. There are six of these principles and let's see what you make of them. The first one, a creative critical turn is fundamental when engaging with all materials, thought and practices, as well as our own subjective experience of all of them. There's no way around this that I can see in this historical moment we're living in. You have to continually educate yourself. And this means getting better at thinking and interrogating across knowledge fields. We know too much to avoid this because we now know that your experience of selfhood and identity in the world is wrapped up in the ideas, beliefs, and assumptions that you have learnt, absorbed, and ingested, whether wittingly or unwittingly, from the messy cultural, social reality in which you were birthed and grew. You should know this already, but it's something we kind of stubbornly resist. And if you're like me, you might have even learnt from Buddhist and New Age teachers that the way to deal with this fact is to dig down for some true essential self or essence, or, conversely, release all intellectual positions into the great void that you might be bathed in some unburdensome love, wonder, all-knowingness, void-like experience, transcendental reality, whatever you like. Now, I'm a generous sort of person, and I think that those are all actually rather interesting avenues to explore. Go and get some first-hand experience, why not? The results may not be as advertised though, right? If you're lucky, they won't be. <laughs> and in my view, things only really get interesting once you've been shat out the other side of La La Land. And I say that critically and lovingly. Really, I'm not being sarcastic, in spite of the voice tone. On the other side of such experiences is a return to the world. Isn't that where things get useful, interesting, and less narcissistic? The critical comes first. It has to. Now, leaving a given Buddhist philosopher, philosophy, set of beliefs, or philosopher from any global tradition, or any political ideology, or any trendy sociological claim to their own devices, generally leads to a poverty of self referential thought and practice. No knowledge or practice field is self-sufficient. None. And any new kind of thought or innovation in practice generally comes about in this day and age through engagement across fields of knowledge. Through a clash, a meeting, a debate, a dialogue, some kind of creative impact. There are so many configurations available, in fact, 
and sitting one kind of idea alongside another can be revelatory, in the good sense of the word. Since the self is rooted in perspectives, beliefs, ideas, and the predictable, this is a kind of practice that goes way beyond some kind of intellectual pursuit. In fact, when done well, it goes to the heart of the ideal of the Buddhist project of working on the self, disrupting the I, challenging the structures within which such a thing is suspended in an artificial reality of negotiation with the real. Ooh, that sounds dramatic. Did I ever do it? If ideas and beliefs are not eternal forms to be discovered, then they must necessarily be subject to the material conditions our bodies experience too. They decay over time, can be reinvigorated with food and water, and be shaped into slightly different forms through some sacrifice, on your part, of sweat and blood. That is, you have to get your hands dirty and do something with them. We can view practice as partly captured within the gestures we make towards the world. And the critical gesture from a useful Buddhist-themed perspective would be to use a critical approach to avoid becoming a mere ideological subject, to use critical thought to avoid identification with ideas, beliefs, and the lineages of both, whilst exploring them openly and in new configurations as living culture. Now, I know I'm the one saying this stuff, and I know that some of this will turn some of you off, but this stuff excites the hell out of me. It really does. Now, being critical means many things, just as being a mystic does, <laughs> but we'll get onto that in a moment. But some things that it means, or some things that it can include, are the following. Taking authority for the intellectual burden you've taken on. Engaging with big ideas can inspire timidity or arrogance, which are both boring options. So if you take authority, what does that mean? It simply means you accept what you know, what you don't know, and you accept responsibility for engaging critically with the ideas, beliefs, and intellectual inheritance you hold. Because if you don't do it, what are you doing? You're always waiting for Mr. Who-Knows-Who to tell you what to think, to tell you where you're wrong, right? Now, those could be gestures towards you, invitations. But until you start taking on some personal responsibility, you ain't going nowhere interesting in my view. The second one, questioning assumptions and disrupting long-held ideas, obviously leads on from the first one. In other words, you need to disrupt your mental comfort zones. I think this is one of the most disappointing aspects of the intellectual life. We are creatures of habit after all, and intellectually that often means finding comfort zones. The next one is kind of interesting, and it's something that's not so popular amongst many folks at present, even though in my view it's kind of the only solution we have to making any progress in the current political climate. But it's looking at the opposition with greater consideration. Because really, there's nothing like analysing the positives of your enemies for understanding the limits and blind spots of your own allegiances. To do this as an empty campfire cup with no agenda is even more enlightening. Now, I'm not saying that's absolutely possible. It can be an ideal that you strive for, right? Yes, another form of practice. You can also do one more step here, which is asking what if this were true of any theory or idea? And then, the opposite. What if this were utterly untrue and false? So, some of what I'm saying is pretty basic, right? For some of you more learned and experienced thinkers, it's obvious. But, again, at the risk of repeating myself, when it comes to identity, most folks tend to retreat from any analysis that might destabilize their ideological commitments. This is another way of talking about cognitive bias, right? And that sort of thing. At least the premise in Buddhist thought in practice is that we can involve the deconstruction of self in all of these processes so that each one has an opposite aim to building us up as faithful ideological subjects formed in someone else's vision of the world. 
The creative comes next, and some of you more creative folks may find yourself creative at the beginning, middle, and end. Good for you. Keep going like that. But in one sense, the creative is just adding on a bit of wonder. It's kind of the resuscitation of intuition, of instinct, and of that irrational desire that drives most of us to do what we do and engage with things like Buddhism or other spiritual practices, or mysticism for that case, in the first place. But in one sense, in a very simple way, this is basically just wondering, dreaming, or imagining how things could be done differently and unexpectedly. From the basics of waking up in the morning, to using your attention, to thinking about global politics and what we should or shouldn't be doing in order to confront the reality of environmental meltdown. It's really that part of us that tries to find a way forward beyond rhetoric, beyond classic thought, beyond the limitations of an identitarian position of left or right or something else. It's the capacity to allow the possibility for things to occur that may not yet exist. It also includes radically divergent configurations of thinkers, ideas, practices, but also ways of being in the world, experimental social configurations, and those all-important questions. Most of our questions echo through history. They've been asked by somebody before. But sometimes, just sometimes, we might conjure up a question in just the right formulation which leads to a breakthrough in thought, whether in our own private lives or as people working on grand projects in the world that might benefit all of humanity. And one of the ways that happens is not just by viewing emptiness and the void like nature of being as dead space, but as pregnant potential. I mean, how many of the world's geniuses have gone to bed and woken up after a dream with new insight? Uh, That's the kind of pregnant potential I'm talking about. We can also view space more generally in this way. Is it dead, black, non-living matter? Or is it something incredible that, you know, you stand on a mountaintop and it's, it's overwhelming how much light there is? All of that, okay, may arrive to us after the fact, but we can't deny the fact that within that blackness, there are many suns and planets. And somewhere out there, one would assume other life forms. The creative view looks to that side of things without denying the other. One side of it is a form of adaption. If there is no total negation in the world, which presumably has to be the opposite of there being no totality or finality, then the ideas we transcend or move beyond kind of remain alive, right? They continue to exist as part of the tapestry of human culture in one way or another. The challenge, in a sense, in order to avoid becoming a predictable reactionary formation, i.e. boring, shaped by that which we hate, despise, and wish to get away from, is to find creative ways to see, connect, and imagine alternatives. In my view, negation is too often an uninteresting form of reactionary politics. We might actually view spirituality as, well, the history of failed attempts to banish parts of the world out of existence in this regard, whilst elevating others to a primary position. Well, denying the existence of things proves pretty useless in negating the actual existence of the thing. We remain in some kind of relationship regardless of our desires, and at least to me that seems to be the situation we find ourselves in politically and socially at present interconnectedness, there's that word, right? We're all kind of stuck with each other. We haven't quite realised it yet. So all the screaming and pushing isn't really helping us find a way forwards. And I kind of feel that way about our fellow Buddhists, spiritual folks, atheists, non-believers, intellectuals, mystical, emotive practitioners. Let's help each other out if possible. Yes, that's utopian. But hey, I'm kind of up for it. Creativity can also be understood here as a recommitment to the world, to those banished parts, and the recognition of our duty to life and the history of our species. This joined to a willingness to find ways to engage that while bringing along history, but also striving not to mindlessly repeat it. Second principle. Dichotomies are useful leap-off points for exploration but don't get stuck in them. 
We are programmed to desire simplicity. We can't help but want to break the world down into manageable chunks or vistas. Dichotomies are useful general starting points for an exploration of themes, though I would suggest it's really helpful to see them as relational pairs and not opposing forces that need to necessarily be resolved and integrated. Well, although that can obviously be appropriate too, right Hegel? If they're allowed to coexist instead, there is so much to learn. Lateral thinking, critical thinking are both useful means for avoiding this, but there's also something else. Third principle, the way of the non. One of our regular visitors is that wonderful Frenchman Francois Laruelle, or Old Frank, as Ian Stewart affectionately call him. It's all Glenn Wallace's fault, of course, as he actually read the man's cryptic prose, ingested it, and after chewing on its flesh and bones, he eventually gave life to a new child in the form of speculative non-Buddhism. Obviously, I have been enchanted by his offspring's cheeky grin and chubby arms, and I've become something of an uncle figure to the child. But without boring you to death with the whole family history and family photos, I will merely suggest that Francois was on to something fundamental for rethinking the world of ideas in the 21st century. In fact, his thought offers a radical form of intellectual freedom and experience, though, from the entrapment of ideology, the pillars of opinion and the identity drag that inevitably occurs when we get way too cosy with beliefs, ideas and identities. So one question Francois, or old Frank, might have asked in his native tongue at some point is what possibilities can be imagined beyond the dichotomy of binaries without rejecting the existence of those same dichotomies. Basically, what exists in relation to the two but does not assert identities within the split between them? And how can that dichotomy become a generating force then for some kind of new thought, practice, experience and relational shift? Calling it the way of the non is simply my attempt to playfully annoy Glenn, but why not conceive of it as a way, which is in a truth a practice? I will go further in my plot to annoy by suggesting that the non is an act of transcendence of the habits of history in a given dichotomy, a refusal to fall into old patterns in which identities are solidified into mirrors that reflect each other's inadequacies. Why not? To engage in a non-practice is to refuse to play the pool of any form of dichotomy, but to stay close enough to experience its delights and ask, what if? Hmm, very, very groovy. Fourth principle, deconstruct by all means and build something. This, I guess you could say, is in resonance with the meta-modern turn that's currently taking place. To find a void at the heart of things is not uniquely Buddhist. It could be perceived of as a death ritual in many ways, when handled creatively, implying that new life can only emerge after a good culling has taken place. To hang out in dead space as refuge is instead life-denying. Come back to the world, someone must have once said. So, in many of our last episodes, we have taken things apart from romantic fantasies about Tibet, to faithful belief in the sufficiency of science to provide us with all the answers, to meditation, without all that messy cultural stuff, from the naive perennialism of global, universal, all-saving Buddhism, to the lack of Buddhist philosophy and its insufficiency in providing a sophisticated and mature social vision of ethics. Stuart and I even did our best to pick apart the gushing worship of Guru's and cultish behaviour to be found in many of our contemporary forms of Buddhism. And we also had a go at the rationally-minded secular mission of transcending the messy irrationality of those bad Buddhisms. In truth, I am constantly reminded that folks are of many shades and shapes and desires. And many of the dysfunctions that you and I see may meet profound needs in some of them. And really, and I say this with you know honesty, who am I to tell such folks that they are wasting their time or fostering communities of delusion? It doesn't mean I have to keep quiet on it, but it may not always be the ethical thing 
to fuck everybody's fantasies up. I've no idea. I guess you've got an opinion on that. This doesn't mean that I'm fine with it all and that we should be and let's just leave things as they are and carry on. No, I'm not making a a salute to the status quo. I, or we, may be reminded that value emerges in all kinds of ways and that taking things apart does not feed the people and all of their messy desires. And, if we're honest about it, is typically a luxury of the intellectually elite. So one understanding of a practice which I kind of like could be rooted in this question. How will you meet the needs of those whom you rob from? Our fellow atheists still have to find some good answers to that question, and I wish them all the best in doing so. Fifth principle. The world of ideas has impregnated your subjectivity. There is no escape. An unspoken assumption on my part, and on Stuart's too, hey old friend, how are you, has been that the world of human history, in terms of culture and ideas, exists and persists in the minds, or collective mind, of we humans, and is deep within our private subjectivity. Thus, your subjective experience is, at least in part, best understood as a product of history. Now, this is a really useful observation for practitioners to take on board. It's fundamental, and it would help them with a lot of the dysfunctional outcomes of practices which buy into the idea of pure, untainted subjectivity. Ideas and theories can then be understood as living within the conscious, subconscious, and unconscious corners of our minds, and as shared across minds. That's a rather interesting terrain to explore. Certainly one that would break a lot of folks out of the solipsistic, you know, self-focused, individualistic vision that still characterizes much of Buddhist practice in the West. Of course, there are reasons why people are more comfortable with the latter. Beastly things lurk deep in the deep, dark woods. Boo to the cowardly, I say. How's it going? Are you getting something from this? Or am I just rambling on? Well, I'm going to assume if I am rambling on too much, you've already turned this off and gone and done something you find more interesting. And good for you. Sixth and last principle. Ideas and theories are animated living things. I just hinted at that, but let's make it more explicit. I love this kind of stuff. Ideas and theories are not held in books and the minds of academics or intellectuals. They are living, animated beings that we ingest and integrate, reject and vomit. We mold these same beings into slightly different configurations through discussion, reflection, analysis, reading, comparing experiences and point of views and more. Therefore, to tie this all together, they are not mere positions to adopt, truths to hold on to tightly and postures in a game of ownership and possession. So, from all of these principles, I declare this. Unlike those impoverished spiritual minimalists with their austerity of mind and heart, this podcast is a Dionysian glutton feasting on the great wealth of our human culture with abandon. Come and feast on life with us if you dare and reject the Puritan simplicity that has dogged much of Western Buddhism which in its worst manifestation rejects knowledge simply as intellectualizing that interferes with pure, uncontaminated mind, which of course, as you all know, is directly connected to the big other. Fill in the blanks for how you want to name that. Let's celebrate ideas and welcome them in and not play the fantasy fiddle of anti-intellectualism and its cynicism towards the wonders of the active feasting mind. If ideas are living little beasties, We experience them directly, and they live in and through us. There is, therefore, no mind-body split going on here, but rather a wonderful ecology of muddy, messy, messed-up beings. Or, as Beckett would say, some folks who are still pretty crazy. All right, you're still with us. You're still with me. We're still going at it. Let's invite our next friend to the fireplace and have a quick word on cynicism. And who better to do this than Peter, or Petter, Schlotterdijk. Pete has popped up in conversation with two guests so far, and 
Uh, can you guess who they are? Yeah, the same ones as before. Glenn Wallace and Ken McLeod. And it's interesting that those two share a lot of similar interests, but uh, probably don't see eye to eye on lots of other things too. But they've got good choice in companionship in terms of intellectual sources. For those unfamiliar with Pete, he's a German philosopher, cultural theorist and author. He's also something of a public intellectual and popular figure. He's had a TV series or two uh, in Germany. And he's kind of interesting. He's one of those people that defies easy definition. The book mentioned by both of those guests was You Must Change Your Life, which is a quote from Rilke, who was a very interesting poet who, oh yeah, just happened to live down the road from where I am now in Trieste. He spent quite a bit of time in Duino Castle, which is half an hour from my door. Isn't it funny how small this world is? That book, anyway, was originally published in German back in 2009 and then in English in 2013. And I have to get something off my chest before going on. I gave up on the English translation. I just found myself shouting insults at the translator for what I thought was his opaque translation of Sloterdijk's thought. Now, anybody that's read around Sloterdijk or reviews of his work He's not the most straightforward of communicators, and that's part of his project. But even so, I think the translation unnecessarily reiterated much of his clumsy syntax. But guess what? It works better in German than it does in English. It also works better in Italian. I bought the same book in Italian, and it's a far better read, which kind of makes me feel smug about the fact that I've proved my point. Disagree as you will. Now, that's out of the way. Complaining over... He's an intellectual treasure, and he covers so many different topics. For some of you, I guess you could compare him to someone like a Zizek, who engages popular culture, uh, sees profound or makes profound observations within it, and then manages to communicate them in a key which is resonant to the topics of our time. Pete was inspired in great part by Nietzsche, and um, he develops an approach to dichotomies or dualisms and knowledge more generally that veers closely to those principles laid out above. What's more, he also suggests that contemporary philosophers have to think dangerously and let themselves be kidnapped by contemporary hyper-complexities. What a wonderful idea. It's one I'm fully on board with, if that's not obvious. My only add-on to that would be that don't leave it in the hands of the philosophers, so get in on it as well. Yeah, Take more risks. Venture into dangerous thought. Now, I'm not a big fan of cynicism. Perhaps it's because I'm towards the end of Generation X, and therefore I'm too familiar with it, and how it got turned into a sort of status symbol for my generation. I also grew up seeing its dysfunctional side, especially amongst the more intellectually leaning folks I came to meet at various points in my life. Why? Well, because so many of them seemed impotent and resigned to fate. And one way uh, Sloterdijk speaks about this is really as a form of learned helplessness. How much of that have you seen around you? He wrote about it as part of the evolution of middle-class consciousness, a class that is conscious of the status quo, not at all happy about it, yet resigned to it. One of my main complaints about cynicism is in fact its inactivity, And also because we Brits have long specialised in a sort of smugness in this regard. Inaction is covered up with a sneer at those who would even dare to entertain hope for something different, or try to imagine another world of possibilities. Further to all of this, Sloterdijk speaks of cynicism as producing enlightened false consciousness, a concept well worth looking into if any of this interests you. One of the great cures for cynicism is the reinvigoration of imagination, coupled with historical consciousness and a critical bent. It must be an imaginative opening that moves forwards into the great unknown of enfolding emergent human history, and not slip back into the many wicked things indulged in by romantic readings of the past, and that sort of pining that hankers after lost moments of imagined perfection. The New Age moment was an odd mix of much of the pining for an imagined past glories, and some of this, of course, was picked up and preserved in contemporary Western Buddhism. Romanticism, solipsism, narcissism, universalism, idealism, perennialism, magical thinking, wishful thinking, 
just to name a few of the ugly beasts we have picked apart with past guests. Now, it may be that this hankering has had its day in the sun and is now firmly on its deathbed, although I kind of doubt it. <laughs> it may be that cynicism, though, has had its day and the metamodern turn may yet see to that along with, of course, environmental demands that will likely keep pulling us towards some kind of pragmatic realism. What some of us, though, might commit to ensuring is that creativity is not lost along the way, for the emotional plane of being needs caring for too. Just have a look at how much suffering is going on in the younger generation, if you're unaware of that. This is a topic which we will hear more about, I'm sure, in upcoming episodes. Now on to the final stretch of this first critical turn. We're still gathered around the forest fire. Uh, Peter is taking a nap. Samuel Beckett is writing a few notes. Mr. Laruel has climbed a tree and uh, seems to be having fun up there. And a young lady has made her way out of the forest and is sitting down. Her name is Evelyn Underhill and we will hear from her in just a moment. In the meantime, I've picked up a rather nice piece of wood off of the floor and have decided not to throw it into the fire just yet. It's going to serve as a useful metaphor for the topic ahead, which is mysticism. Now, ideally, I would be spending the whole of this first critical turn talking about different aspects of the conversation with Hokai and Ken, but obviously, being the first one, I needed to do what I did just now. So I'm just going to focus on mysticism for the last, say, 15-20 minutes of this and throw in a few thoughts. Now, even around a campfire, it would be kind of nice to have a complete or holistic discussion of mysticism as part of culture more broadly. Talk about the origins of the word, its legacy and history within Christianity and Judaism and Islam. And finally, look at how the term gets used to talk about something like Buddhism and the non-Abrahamic religions. That would be great. It would also be nice to analyse the attacks it's received from philosophers and from science. And it would be nice to have a look at uh, which other folks are playing around with the term and the notion of mysticism today in our contemporary society. But I think all of that is best done in a future podcast episode with an appropriate guest. Well, what I'm going to do is apply some of the principles we've just used to thinking about mysticism, and in particular, uh, doing so whilst picking up on some of the ways we spoke about the topic in the conversation with Ken and Hokai. The term mysticism is rather like the term spirituality. It's very difficult to know what we're talking about. Normally, using a word like mysticism or mystic triggers various associations in the mind of the listener if it triggers anything at all. That's already an interesting starting point, right? To ask, what does a term like mysticism symbolize for me? Depending on your reading, your educational background, your practice background, and the way you view spirituality or a path or religion like Buddhism in the first place, you'll probably have a number of concepts that you use to navigate that concept too. So my general practice for the last years has really been to to do what I spoke about with the principles. The first step would then be to relocate mysticism and all of its stories within the world of material human reality. Because mysticism, in one of its strongest expressions, is understood as the union the with union. God or some kind of ultimate reality. By bringing it back down to earth, we unlock it from all of the inevitable problems of, of such claims. I don't believe in God. I don't even believe such a thing makes sense in this world we inhabit. At best, I guess, call myself agnostic. But within the agnosticism, whether there's a God or there isn't a God would be on a very long list of speculative questions about other things too. So I'm primarily interested in what we can know and then what we can share 
with other humans. And that excludes certain types of hypotheses and speculations about ultimate reality. This was a major theme actually within the conversation with Ken and Hokine. Ken, if you were listening, made a point that one of the major problems with something like mysticism, spiritual practice and religion more generally is the divide between ontological and phenomenological descriptions. A lot of mysticism or spirituality or personal private practice inhabits the realm of the phenomenological. And I think you could be generous here and say it's often just due to uh, a lack of education on the topic. Many folks who have incredibly disruptive and powerful experiences that would be described and expressed within the key of ultimate reality and would benefit from just simply being coming to understand they may not be doing that after all. Why, why do that though? Well, because powerful, emotional, visionary experiences are a part of life, right? They're part of human potential and experience. And there's a reason why people return to them, seek them out, valorize them so greatly. Just think about ethnogens or magic mushrooms and acid and ayahuasca. Why do people take these things? What does it provide? What do each one of them gift in terms of experience and transformation? It's interesting as well here to note that in studies that have been carried out on the effects of substances like ecstasy or acid in laboratories under laboratory conditions, a very high percentage of folks who go through those experiments continue to describe those experiences as amongst the most powerful, important, life-changing that they've ever had. And I think often that the people who are critical of ecstatic experience and these transformational moments, they often um, get stuck on that kind of uh, split between the therapeutic and the personal and then the intellectually valid and true divide. In engaging with mysticism as a practice, the way I see practice functioning within the key that I've spoken of today is to place it thoroughly in the hands of my fellow humans. In this sense, it's represented by that stick that I picked up off the forest floor. Taking it in my hands, I can roll it around. I can feel its surface, its textures. I can peel off bark, smooth it down, perhaps with the help of some tool, see if there are any insects living within the cracks, look at the shape and the potential it has. But just like my fellow humans who are sat around the fireplace and listening to this, these are material things that I can touch and come into contact with and I can share experiences with each with other fellow humans. And one of the great limitations of mysticism has traditionally been its private characteristic and its sort of juxtaposition between the private, the internal, and the universal and absolute. Interestingly, if we were to take one of the classic metaphors from the world of shamanism, or classical shamanism, we would talk about the world, sort of the world the as above, and the world below, and then there's a world in between. So in shamanism, when you engage in some kind of visionary journey, you either go above to the spirits who may take on the form of light, gods, of demons, of otherworldly things, or you go into the world below where you may find spirit manifestations of animals and beastly things too. And the world in between is that human world. You can even journey there too. And I think that in our day and age, the journey in the middle is the one that's most important. And in fact, we can understand that it is the basis of all other visionary knowledge. Now, some people will find that very uncomfortable. But if you listen carefully, I'm not saying to our great dreamers and journeyers and visionary seekers that you should get rid of any of that. I'm just saying that all of that, when experienced, is human culture, human practice, and it happens in the world in between. As soon as we do something like that, it actually becomes accessible to our fellow humans. It no longer travels on a plane of transcendence upwards or downwards. It becomes something that we can actually talk about. It becomes something which is real 
and not just in the fantasy and the imagination and the psychological dysfunction of those speaking of it. And this applies to mysticism equally. As soon as it's in our hands, we have something we can touch, we can look at, we can observe, we can play with, we can reshape, we can turn into a tool if we wish, or into a beautiful ornament, or just allow the thing to be what it is, a stick. Why make this point? Why labour over it? Well, because the big issue, in a sense, is that distinction between ontology and phenomenology, between experience and reality, between descriptions and the things in themselves. And the speculation about this or that is, is all really interesting. But it's also really interesting just to say, what do we know and what can we know and what is happening? and to respect the great variety of experience that people have, but find ways to talk about it that would, well, help us all to understand things a bit better. So by returning the transcendent to the imminent plane of human practice, we can start to take a different kind of relationship with it too. And I think this is fundamental because if so much of what passes for spirituality, religious experience, visionary knowledge, transcendental transformation, awakening, enlightenment, radical breakthroughs, etc., etc. When we start to talk about all of those things within the common tongue, when we start to see them as objects or as experiences that we can actually take in our hands and touch and look at from a variety of perspectives, then those things become, in a sense, part of the rich culture that we can begin to share more successfully with each other. It also means that such forms can be seen by others who are not within a given practice tradition, not within a given group of practitioners. Now, does it mean that certain perspectives on that material will be out of sight for many? Yes, I think it will. There is something to be said for experience, progress and the kind of results and certain types of disciplines that come about through time, through maturation, and through what we might define again as a path that has been trodden. You can't all have access to everything. And this is one quality, we might say, of the mystical. There is a certain amount of hiddenness to it. A certain part of it is mysterious. But there is a difference between something being mysterious and fleeting and only to be grasped by the mind of he or she who is blessed by the divine, and then that which is hidden amongst the bushes high up in the tree branches and difficult to perceive in the depths of the wood. With a bit of effort, you might climb that tree. With some time and care, you may find your way through the bush, and if you are patient, your eyes may even slowly adapt to the darkness. But of course, you can also use a candle or a torch, or you can be patient and wait for the conditions to change so that you may actually see what was hidden in the dark. (coughs) Mysticism within the Buddhist context, as we spoke about it then, can start from that basic premise, that mysticism is understood within the phenomenological descriptions of experiences of practitioners, and what they are describing is not ultimate reality, but a quality of experience of relating to the world and to a practice path and goals within it. That said, let's go meet our last guest at the fireplace. There she is, it's Evelyn Underhill. Hi Eve, how are you this evening? Now Evelyn, you should know listeners, was a British mystic. She died in 1941 and therefore lived through an interesting phase of human history, and in particular the end of the Edwardian Age in the UK and the start of the last century, a period of time in which the religious spiritual curiosities of the educated classes was very active. It's where we hear the beginnings of the stories of Western Buddhism and of neo-shamanism and of the occult, and Evelyn was around at that time, but those were not the roads she journeyed along. 
She was born into the mystical path, so to speak, child that had premonitions and experiences which were difficult for her to describe and define and contextualise. So she did what many young people do. She found a context in which to make sense of that. She was an Anglo-Catholic writer in the end and is celebrated by the Anglican Church still today. She was a prolific author, but perhaps for us her most interesting book, which was published in 1911, was called Mysticism. She's an interesting character because, well, she was around a short while ago, but also because she had quite a a practical view of this mysticism thing. Although being very much a romantic, um, she was also a good thinker. And she did believe, though, that the mystical life was not uh, exclusive or something to be kept to the reclusive mystic. She felt it should be accessible to the average person. And also that uh, the mystical experience led to real-world creativity and a renewed capacity to engage with life. And I think that's part of the reason why I want to mention her. But also because, like so many mystics, whether from Buddhism or Christianity or something else, some of the ways she talks about mystical experience fall back into the category of the ineffable. But if anybody's been paying attention to spiritual folks, religious folks and Buddhists too, in spite of the claim by Wittgenstein that we should not speak about that which cannot be spoken of, most, uh, well, at least most public proponents of the ineffable find something to say about it in the end. She describes it as an abrupt experience of the peaceful, undifferentiated plane of reality. Instead of uh, lobbing it into the bin of discarded comments is again to waste an opportunity. This is her attempt at describing something which, at the time, was beyond words. And there are qualities in it which are quite interesting. Abrupt, peaceful, undifferentiated, plane of reality. We can read this in a variety of ways. We can do what I suggested before. We could take it initially as an entertaining view of reality, as an ontological description. But we can also describe it as a phenomenological description. But not stop there. Do it as one that is distinct when compared to that person's prior experiences of the phenomena of his or her life. There it becomes even more interesting. It's a statement about breakthrough or an ecstatic bump. It's a revelatory experience, meaning a meaningful break, perhaps from the monotony or consistency of an uncomfortable, enclosed way of being. It can also be a phrase that consolidates persistent, meaningful and valuable experience. Thus again, a description of thoughts thus encased in a social value system and one that can be kept to oneself, ignored or spread as the good word. All of those things are going on in that phrase. But one thing that we should finish up with, which this leads us to, is the potential good that would be lost if we were to eject mysticism entirely. Now, old Evelyn got different kinds of feedback from the people around her when she had her mystical experiences. Her family responded one way, and different kinds of teachers responded in others. The fact is that she was a young person looking for responses to something she couldn't understand. Now, if you look at the world of contemporary spirituality in Western Buddhism, everybody seems to have a whole lot of answers. And of course, these are the people that are gone to by those who are young and have powerful experiences and don't know what to do with them. We also have a society which has an awkward relationship with things like ecstasy. No, I'm not talking about the drugs now, but experiences of abandon, of merging oneself with intense emotions, ecstatic feelings and joy. And there's no doubt that these kinds of things can all be left in and framed within the key of religion, the key of spiritual experience, the key of hedonistic pleasure, the key of indulgence and of recreation. But there's another side to all this too. One of the ways we can view ecstatic experiences is a, a big fuck you to the boring status quo of conformity to identities and social practices and relationships. In fact, the very fact that ecstatic experience has been 
managed so carefully, controlled so much, and has terrified so many religions, and so many teachers, and so many governments, and so many parents, tells you that it is in itself a revolutionary force. Much of what's offered as Buddhism or meditation is written, in a sense, within the key of Dawaness, of self-control, of self-management, of self-excellence, of self-refinement, of the training of a wild mind, the managing of dodgy emotions. In essence, it so often, at least from what I can see, ends up becoming a practice of conformity and of self-constraint, restraint and control. Ecstatic experience also brings renewal, energy, new life, enthusiasm. And Evelyn kind of told us this, right? She was hinting at something with their creativity and that ability to be practical at the same time. And of course, practical doesn't just mean transactional and efficient. And we spoke about that with Glenn and Hokai. But at the same time, it doesn't have to mean self-absorbed, self-referential, personal, private breakthrough. I would just end with this. We all need ecstatic experience. It can make us feel uncomfortable, which is a great thing. It can make us feel fear, which is a wonderful thing too. And some practices that can produce that kind of experience, both for individuals and, importantly, for groups, are ritual and ceremony. And we're going to be talking with a guest at some point very soon about these topics. In fact, right after I get through my conversation with Daniel Ingram. Anyway, there's much to be said, and I've already said more than enough. So I'm going to finish up with the final, final request. So this was clearly an experiment from being accompanied by interesting guests around the fireplace with the sounds of ravens and a fire crackling in the background with a bit of groovy music, some of it tongue-in-cheekedly rather mystical. Well, I had fun putting this together and I wonder what you make of it too. Tell me what you want. If you're after something, if you need something from these critical interventions, which are limited, of course, and imperfect, as I said at the beginning, just let me know. Don't complain in silence. Don't complain in private. Share. Say what you think. If you need more of something, less of something else, then state your case, share it, and I'll uh, take it into consideration. There are many topics that could be explored within a critical reflection as it reflects on what has gone before. One of those could be, for example, a critical reflection on politics at present, just to get that out the way, since I keep ending up coming back to a specific set of themes on politics with folks. I'd be happy to take a, a kind of non-tweaked approach to it all and apply some of the principles that came up in this podcast. That's all for now. See you next time with Daniel Ingram on the Imperfect Buddha podcast. Thank you for listening.